Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back to talk more about the gear side of photo and video. So our first topic today is about the Atomos Ninja 5. And we both just recently got done doing some film shooting where we were using those quite a bit. And we got quite a bit of experience messing with those and seeing what the what the ins and outs of them were. And I felt like we came up with a couple of quirks, uh, ran into a couple of weird issues with them. But I wanted to talk about that. And then I also wanted to talk about whether we feel like it's good as a camera monitor. So the main purpose of it being to record onto a hard drive. But I think we both wondered originally if you should just use that as your on-camera monitor rather than buying like a dedicated monitor. And so now that we've used it some, uh, maybe we can talk through that and see what we think. Yeah, I wanted to maybe touch a little bit on, you know, some of the things that I've used it for. Uh, it was something that I had considered buying one of those small HD five inches monitors. And then I was, you know, hey, if I'm going to spend this much money on on a small HD, like why not just buy a Ninja 5? Yeah. Right there. It's, I mean, whenever you start thinking about, okay, I got to get an NPF battery and I got to get a hard drive for it and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's, it's almost double the price. And that was the main, half the reason that I went with the small HD and but I think that the small HD is brighter and a lower resolution. But regardless, I did that, and so I never never got around to buying a Ninja until um, there was a couple things that we were we were doing this year. Uh, one of which was long form interview, and I needed to record for like four hours nonstop, and so you know I needed the unlimited recording, and I needed two Ninjas all of a sudden, and so it's like diving into this whole new thing, and there's a lot of stuff with the Ninja that you just if you don't know, then like you can you can be unprepared. One of which is is I mean I'll just jump straight to it is is the kangaroo problem. <laughs> it's like we're in Australia or something. Yeah, right. Well, one like it doesn't nowhere does it tell you what it means. It's not like it's in the manual and you like you search online you know Ninja Five kangaroo and it doesn't necessarily look like a kangaroo. You're like yellow triangle. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this is. So so back up a minute. What what is the kangaroo? Like what are you talking about? Well, like if you're recording, um, sometimes you'll get like a little a really small symbol on the on the screen and it's a it's a yellow triangle with a, a marsupial in it that's just bouncing. The the triangle isn't bouncing, but it's just it just appears and you know, like that's it's the stroke of death. There's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter if you're like in the middle of like shooting a scene on a shoot and you've spent thousand dollars to have everybody there you get the kangaroo like that's it you're you're basically done and i've had i know that you've had different experience with it but like for me every time i've gotten a kangaroo it was like either the ninja's gonna lock up on me and it's like it's over and you have to like force restart it and hope you can recover the footage or it just stops recording because it's having a drive issue yeah, I mean, because when we looked it up, it when we finally found information on it, it seemed like it was saying that it was that the drive couldn't write fast enough to keep up with what you were recording. And the time I saw it, it was when I was using a drive that was not one of the, like not one of on their approved list, you know, not one of the approved drives. And so I just kind of assumed that's what it was. And luckily for me and my footage, it wasn't skipping frames. I mean, it, it, the footage looked fine and I kept using, like I used that footage, but when we had that happen on this project, it was actually like there were actually skips in the footage. I think right, yeah, it was it was detrimental. We had to basically pull another drive, and what was strange was the drive was a one terabyte, and it was good for like five hundred gigs. And then once it got half full, 
that's when we started getting kangaroo issues. And I don't know if it was overheating or if it was the capacity of the drive. But I feel like the lessons learned there was, obviously the kangaroo has to do with its ability to write to the SSD. And if it can't write fast enough for whatever reason, like you're out of luck. But once like use the use drives from the approved Atomos drive list. And like, even though you like, you look at the one that you're about to buy and you look at the drive list and you're like, well, it says it supports it. The write speeds on this drive I'm about to buy, they say sustained write speed and they're all over the required limit. It's like, it doesn't matter. I guess like Atomos has tested against their drive lists and so like they know those are going to work yeah and like if you're going to spend the money it's like just get the ones that you know are going to work like the samsung evos or the western digital blues mm-hmm. don't like buy it on sale ssd i guess i feel like that's part of it and then the other thing is if you're doing something that is mission critical where you've got you know this is the only chance you can get that footage or you've got all these people and gear that you've rented and it, you know it's an expensive situation have extra drives oh no you know, kidding like, like that was part of the problem we had was that we got into that situation and we didn't have any spare drives and so our best approach was to clear off one of the other drives and then format it and use that and that, you know it, all this takes time and then you're deleting footage and i mean it just seems like you need to have a stack of those things if you're doing something oh, for sure it's like if you if you have thousands of dollars worth of camera gear or like you brought in actors or anything like that or it's like once in a lifetime, right? You're, you're doing documentary stuff and you're not going to be able to go back and do it again. Yeah. A one terabyte SSD costs 80 bucks. I mean, I would, it's like have 10 of them. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so that was that was a uh, an unexpected thing. But I mean, there's there's even more than just that. Um, you had some color color issues with it. Where like the, what you're looking at on the Ninja just doesn't match the camera. Yeah, I mean, I had that back when I was using it with the GH5 where I would... And, and I think it happened on the XH2S as well. I need to try that again. But it just seems like whenever I run from the camera to the Ninja, if I look at the camera screen and the Ninja side by side, it's like the Ninja is a lot darker. And so I can't use it to set exposure because it doesn't seem like it matches up. And what, I mean, like, I don't quite, exa- I don't exactly know what, what to do about that. But like talking through some of those like settings to look for, for instance, I know we were having that issue with S1H as well, where... Um, the image just didn't quite look right. And so obviously there's LUTs to look at. Um, you got to make sure that you're not applying a profile or the wrong profile. Uh, the Ninja will read in Rec. 709 and BT2020. So you got to make sure you're looking at the right color profile. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be careful with that because like for the, for the A7 series cameras, you can shoot um, like HLG in Rec. 709 and Rec. 2020. So like you gotta make sure okay am I, which one am I outputting and which one am I am I reading and displaying, and then on top of that like once you get into the the display settings I mean you can change like tone and the uh, the gain and the brightness and all yep. this stuff and like I never know when exactly to adjust those versus like what's on camera um, it seems like you have to do a lot of testing in controlled environment to know like where to get your ninja calibrated exactly right for your setup. Well, and then the other thing I'm not sure about is there's the there's the tools like the waveform and I think the ninja has false color like all the all the exposure tools that you can use. And I always wonder if if what I'm seeing on the ninja is darker, does that mean that those exposure things are also going to be show like are those going to be showing me reflecting what I'm seeing on the ninja? Or are those going to reflect what's the what's right? Like, the is the camera signal? is the camera outputting something other than what the camera screen is showing? Exactly. And like, do you trust you know what the ninja's seeing, or do you trust you know what the graph is seeing? And is the graph 
which one's which one is the graph reflecting? Yeah. And I would assume that like the input signal the ninja's receiving is gonna be what it's recording to. And so like that's what you have to expose to, I guess. Whenever you were looking at that though, like when you went back and played the footage, was the footage itself darker? Well, so so whenever I was doing it, I would look at the ninja screen and I would use that to set my I, I wasn't using the tools. I mean I wasn't really doing that much with the waveform i just looked at it and thought you know that looks like it's clipping i'm going to turn the exposure down you know i'm going to lower my iso or something and it wasn't like i shouldn't have done that because it was it was underexposed and you were doing that based upon like what you were seeing on the monitor yeah yeah i was just doing it i wasn't using the waveform i was just i was just looking at it and i was saying i can tell that looks like it's uh overexposed so i'm going to turn down my uh iso and then when i did that the actual footage on the computer was underexposed so there's a lot of there's a lot of little things with the ninja where it's like if you man and like both of the times where I like used the ninja and I was like okay we're capturing footage let's go and I hadn't done enough using it beforehand yeah. on my own and it's like there's four there's four symbols on the bottom where you have like the record button the play button the square and then something else um, like a tag and you can select those and then whenever you hit settings it opens up different setting menus. And so you can get into like certain setting menus to like flip the screen and, and change these things, but those are different than like the main menu settings, which you know where you set all your record values and what have you. And it's it's difficult to find things I think on the Ninja. And then there's so there's so many settings where like you can set the um, like the compatibility mode of the HDMI. And I've had stuff where like recording you know game footage off of an Xbox or PlayStation where. Like you have to set it to you know one HDMI 1.4 or 2, 2.0 instead of like automatic, or it doesn't quite work. And so there's quirky stuff with that, and it's I feel like it could be easier to use the Ninja than it is. With the Kangaroo stuff, I wish it was a little more reliable. I'm always like a little nervous uh, using the Ninja, but that's probably mostly because I haven't I haven't used it enough. And then like lastly, powering it right when recording with like an MPF 750. Um, I mean, you can get maybe an hour uh, at most out of it. And yeah. it's those batteries are big and heavy. Mm-hmm. And so to answer the question as far as like, is the Ninja a good monitor? I think it's like, okay as a monitor, but I don't think it lasts long enough and it, it has too many other features. And I think it's honestly too difficult to use. Yeah. And something that's more purpose-built is probably better. Yeah, I mean, it does have weird reliability things. I mean, one of the other big reasons that you use it is if you want to get raw, you know, so like the S1H, X-H2S, you know, a lot of modern cameras can record raw to the Ninja, which is really cool. But we were even seeing weird problems with that, where sometimes it seemed like if we turned off one of the things, like if we turned off the camera and turned it back on or something, it would get the Ninja into a state where it was like, wasn't, it wasn't reading out smoothly. I mean, it seemed like the footage was like, yeah, it was like jumping frames or whatever. And so we had to, to reset both of them. And, and it seems like there's a lot of little things like that. I mean, yeah, it seems like it's heavier. It has a fan in it, which most monitors don't. And it's much more expensive than a non-camera monitor. And honestly, I just, I just find the interface to not be as good as most other monitors. I mean, Man, you're, the, you're making me not want a ninja anymore. Yeah. I mean, I already have one, but I'm like, oh boy. I mean, what it, am I going to use this it's a for? Good, it's a good tool for certain things, you know, doing like long interview, anything where you need to record for a long time. If you want to use settings that, that aren't supported internally in your camera. I mean, yeah. like, like on the GH5, I can't record 4K60 10-bit internally, but I can do it with the ninja. So if you want to do stuff like that, it's good. I guess I'm trying to think like, 
what are the other options? And then I guess a Ninja 5 is really, every Ninja 5 Plus, those series of recorders, I guess Blackmagic makes something similar, um, are really like the in-between step, right? You're going, you're taking your existing, you know, mirrorless camera, and now you're applying it to something where you need more of those professional, professional codecs or mm-hmm. what have you, or unlimited record times. Versus like if you take, you know, two more steps up, now you're shooting on something that's going to shoot raw internally, and you're or you're shooting on like a whatever a C500 or what have you, and then in those cases, I guess you just don't need a ninja, yeah, because you're recording it into the camera. Yeah, I mean it's also worth pointing out that storage cost is a lot cheaper too. Like you mentioned, you can get a one terabyte SSD for like eighty bucks or whatever it is, and I mean getting a one terabyte SD card is obviously a lot more expensive or than a that. CF Express card, yeah, or a CF <laughs> Express card, and so. If you if you're doing something where you need to record a lot of footage, even if it's not for a long long bits of time, but if, you know if you're doing a project where I, you know I'm going to need to record five minute clips, but you know 300 of them, then maybe it's better to use something like that rather than constantly swapping SD cards. Like you don't have to delete your footage as often. I mean, I feel like that's more of an argument for why more cameras need to do what Blackmagic is doing unless you record to like a T5. I mean, why can't I record to an SSD off my off my Fuji? I mean, that's what I would have done. Like I, I wouldn't have gotten the Ninja if that had been an option. You yeah. know, if I could do all the same codecs and stuff and record to an external SSD, then yeah, I definitely would have done that. Uh, and then just use a regular monitor. I mean, obviously it comes down to processing power or maybe it's just heat i guess like you have to run those processors so hard and most anything that's going to shoot raw internally has a fan right like the um the r5c has a fan mm-hmm. uh does the blackmagic 6k shoot raw internally i don't know if it does or not yeah, i don't know either but yeah i mean most most of those things have fans like that's the, true. like the s1h or whatever yeah that, yeah, that doesn't should. shoot raw internally though yeah anyway yeah i don't know and I guess the other thing that this was making me think about is that it's interesting because with the Ninja, it's something that you would use for more more professional or like higher stakes situations, you know, like doing those long interviews and stuff. And I mean, at least for us, it's not really something where if we're just casually shooting a video with our cameras, like we're not we're not typically using something like that. But on the other hand, you don't want the first time you use something like a Ninja to be while you're doing, you know, a film shoot or something that is high stakes like that. And so it, it seems like a good argument for learning how to use your gear. You know, if you're going to be doing something that's important to you, then take the time to experiment with it, learn all the ins and outs of it before you need it. Knowing your gear and knowing the limitations is just, it's number one. Yeah. Especially whenever you get into something where you're getting paid to do work or you're doing some long form project. It's like, know your gear. Mm-hmm. When I was shooting that long form interview on one of the ninjas once or twice at like hour, whatever, two and a half, it just stopped recording. And like it froze, and I couldn't get like any input, and it's I was like I don't know I don't know what to do. I guess it was once. It was once on that interview, and it was once when I was doing some game footage recording, just like messing with the ninja. And it's I don't know if it's like overheating or if it's a right issue, but it just freezes, and then you have to force restart it, and then you have to recover the footage, and it can take like forty five minutes to recover the footage. And if that happens on a shoot, I mean, it's like lose it or make everybody wait. It's, yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a problem. Man, so. I don't think we're doing a very good job of selling the Ninja. I don't know. I love the Ninja. I feel like it's a perfect... It's, it, it is that. It's like you you can't afford like a real deal cinema camera. You're not going to shoot on like a Komodo or a Confinity or what have you. The Ninja unlocks this like next step. And yeah. then you can, you can shoot raw 
or what have you. And so it's like it, it opens up this world as like a gear junkie and a, and a um, someone who likes to like make content. But uh, yeah, I mean, it comes with quirks and issues and it's it's frustrating that it's not as reliable as a lot of pro gear. I mean, kind of going back to your original thing, you know, two years ago or whatever, when you were looking at getting a monitor, if what you want is a camera monitor, I would not get the Ninja. I would just buy a small HD or an Atomos Shinobi or something. Like, right. you could spend half as much. It's a simpler device, and, like, it's it's probably just going to be more reliable than what than what the Ninja is. Definitely. I would I would absolutely agree with that. So it's, it's just a totally different thing. Yeah. And, like, maybe conserve that dual purpose for some people, but I think there's still enough reason to have both, to have a monitor and have a Ninja. Well, I think we've got a lot more we could talk about on that at some point. Like it'd be at some point we need to talk about, you know, is shooting on ProRes really an advantage? Like, cause that's the other thing that we say about it, you know, it's like, oh you know, you, you shoot in ProRes and then it's easier on your computer and we should dig into that at some point, but yeah. maybe not today. Uh, cool. I think that's, that's probably about good on that topic. So we also wanted to talk about other things being on cameras and I wanted to ask you about that uh, new top handle you got with the record button. So that's the, so um, that. that's the small rig brand top handle with with the record button um, it runs into the the remote trigger on the camera for certain models so like fuji xt4 xt3 xh2s xh2 i think it's like that on the nikons maybe now does yours come with multiple cables because there's yeah there's some with... cameras that use usb-c and then there's some that use the 2.5 yeah millimeter. that's what i was going to get to is the sony's use the usb-c you have to go in the other into the usb-c port I wouldn't have bought it if I knew it was going to occupy the USB port. I guess I don't know enough about how um, charging while recording and power delivery is on other cameras, but like at least with the Fuji stuff, I can plug in a power bank into the USB-C. Or if I'm shooting on like XT30, those don't even have a headphone jack. You have to use the USB-C port for your headphones. And like neither of those are problems for me, but if I know that if I was shooting on that kind of camera and I, I wouldn't necessarily want to occupy the USB-C port. Plus like that feels a lot more finicky than a barrel jack. Yeah. Like the, uh, like whatever two and a half millimeter, um, is it small, two millimeter? It's uh, 2.5, I think. Yeah. Remote shutter. So as far as using it, I mean, the button's clicky. It's good balance. It's a fine handle. Uh, the front of it has a airy mount so that you can mount uh, small rigs matching a monitor, moving monitor mount to the front of it. I thought that, that was the same thing as like a Rosetta type, like whatever star pattern. Yeah. And it's super not. <laughs> it is a totally different thing. And you have to use the stinking airy whatever mount. Yeah, it has those airy locating pins. Yes. And... and so I bought like the wrong thing and I have to get like another thing and whatever so like if you buy it you got to know like where am i going to mount my monitor and it has a really cool like locking cold shoe on the top where you can slide it in and then you know you have to press a button to pull it out and things that lock like that are fantastic um, and it also it's a nato rail handle the one that i bought so you can slide it on and off yeah i was going to um, ask how it attached so yeah and so like rail. if you buy the locking pin nato rails the handle the smaller handle won't set directly onto the NATO, it has to slide in, which is fantastic. So like you slide it over the pins and now like it's just not coming off unless you push the pin and slide it out and then it, it tightens down. So that feels really secure and safe because it's I've had other top handles that were NATO where you just set it on there and tighten it. And it's like if that comes untight, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh as far as its attachment to the camera, definitely secure. I feel really good about it. 
I feel like that the NATO rail thing is is my favorite way to attach those handles because I've seen some where they just screw on, uh, like they just have two two screw holes and you just like bolt it to the to the top of the cage. But I like the NATO rail thing because you can remove it. Yeah, because quick, uh, unless you have a special bag, you're not transporting the camera with the handle attached. Yeah, totally. A quick secure removal, um, quick secure attachment with removal is mm-hmm. is definitely the selling point. I don't like how. I don't like adding all those rails to my cage. Like, I wish the uh, XH2S cage had a NATO rail on top. Yeah. But whatever. The only problem, though, is a lot of times, because I, I do have some cages that have it built in, but I've never seen one where it's built in and has those uh, spring-loaded security pins. That's a good point. That's critical. Like, it I, is. I would have a really hard time trusting a top handle if I felt like... You mentioned that some of them you can loosen enough to just pull it off. But, like, even without that, if you don't have the security pins, yeah, if it just loosens a little bit, it could just slide right off. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the only thing worse than that is those ones that go into the hot shoe on the camera. <laughs> like, what are you thinking? Just, wow. just tighten it down a little bit. It's only holding, like, six pounds. <laughs> Well, and you also, you always have to think like, what is the worst case scenario if this breaks? <laughs> like, not only not only have you dropped your camera, but like your hot shoe attachment would be all bent up at that point. It would be awful. Just that, that YOLO lifestyle. Just gonna get out there, get that low low footage. I don't understand whatever that. cost. So, attachment's great. The option for the mounting is nice, but I guess my why I'm complaining and my my problem is like. Mounting it on the front top of the handle is cold shoe. Mm-hmm. Mounting it on the front side of the handle is airy. And you, therefore, you can't switch between. You have to have two different mounting if you systems. Wanted, if you wanted to put it in, right. in those two spots. Because I specifically bought a secondary cold shoe so that I could screw it to the front of the handle. So that I could, I could take the monitor mount and I could put it so the monitor was facing forward. Or put it so that it was facing up. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I could change like how low is that profile. And you just can't screw a cold shoe thing into the front of the thing. Yeah. And I can't find like an airy cold shoe adapter or what have you. I wish it was the same. It was the same so I had the option of doing either instead of having to have two separate pieces of hardware. Right. That's annoying. Um, securement's good. The button on the top is like, it's clicky. It's a fine button. It's not my favorite button as far as like buttons go, but it's okay. It doesn't half press. And that's, that's the most frustrating thing. I, I never use top handles because like you're holding it with your right hand and then you have to like reach over with your left hand and hit record or like you have to hold the camera with your left hand and hit record with your right hand. It's just and like I'm always gonna want to focus with my left hand uh, nine times out of ten if I'm like holding the lens and I just don't have the muscle like memory of like doing it with my right hand and so like holding the handle with my left hand and like trying to like focus on my right hand hit record with my right hand it's just I just don't use top handles mm-hmm. because pressing the record button sucks and the button i'm like okay this is great i can just like hold it i can press the button to start record but now if you're if you're using like single point autofocus or you're using back button autofocus or anything that's not manual focus now it's another problem i was like what you kind, can't what kind of filthy casual are you why are you recording <laughs> video with autofocus oh jeez, oh boy uh, yeah so it's that's 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 my other gripe i just i wish i could well, I mean, like sometimes like you have to cancel out of things, right? Like you jump to a menu or whatever, and it's like you want to half press the shutter. And the fact that I just can't half press the shutter, and you don't think about how often you half press the shutter until you can't do it. And so that's that's my main thing is, and it's probably what will make me eventually stop using it if I do stop using it. But overall, uh, I think it's worth 
I mean, any other top handle is going to cost like 40 bucks, 60 bucks, right? And this thing cost 80. It was like 79 on Amazon. And so I was like, I'm just going to end up buying this sometime down the road. So it's like, spend the extra 30. The handle's fine. If I don't use the remote shutter, it's still a good handle. I'd give it, you know, eight, eight out of 10. It's fine. I wonder if it's even possible to do the half press with the remote shutter release. Like, I wonder if the if the protocol on the shutter release even oh, like supports does the pin, that. Does the pin even support it? Yeah. Is this a camera maker problem or is it a small rig problem? That's, a, that's a really good point. <laughs> I know there's another there's another top handle with a record button. It's made by Condor Blue. I think it's pretty similar. It has it has the same uh, NATO attachment on the bottom. The one difference I saw in how it works is that it has a um, it has a hole in it so you can put a 15 millimeter rod uh, horizontally. So if you wanted to put like a monitor or something on it, you could clamp it to that rod. That seemed like kind of a cool feature. And I like Condor Blue a lot as a brand. I think they make neat stuff, but it is more expensive. I think that one's a hundred bucks, and yours yeah. I think was eighty. Yeah, it's twenty dollars more. It does say that it supports Fuji, which is good. I, mm-hmm. They don't they don't have a lot of like they don't have still like Fuji cages or anything. Yeah, I'm a big fan of those that HDMI cable that I bought, the one that Gerald and Dunn recommended. Um, I bought the bought the fancy purple one, and we used that for like that whole shoot, and it was. It was my favorite one to use for, for all the ninja stuff that we did. Well, I mean, it's purple. And it's, and it's purple, so yeah. that's, that's good, too. Uh, I have a handle that has the, the rod that goes through it. I have, like, two complaints about it. One, just to, just like, a point, it doesn't really spin on you. So, like, that's not necessarily a problem, and that's, I wouldn't... That, that would be what I would have assumed was wrong with it, is that, you know, it would start tilting when you didn't yeah, want it to. Yeah, which is why I bring it up immediately, is, like, that's actually not a problem. So the the pin it seems to like secure pretty well, and I put my my small HD on it. Mm-hmm. I ran it through, put the small HD on one side, and then I put one of those power junkie NPF plates on the other side, and it works. But I find that you have this rod going horizontally, and it's only maybe like a half an inch or so off of the cage, and so now you can't put anything on top of the cage um, because this this is running horizontally, and then. You're going to hold the top handle, right? And so, like, you don't want to put anything to the right or left of the handle because you need to be able to grab the handle. Unless yeah. it's far enough over, it's just going to get in the way of your of your hand. And so it makes it hard to, like, switch your grip around I if see. you have something on both sides. So now you can only put something on one side. And then whenever you put it on that one side, it, one, the, like, the balance gets really weird because now you have this, like, yeah. heavy thing that's lopping over here. And it just kind of depends on what you're using it for. And, like, I've tried using it with a mic. I've tried using it with a power plane. I've tried using it with a monitor. And I don't like any of them. Yeah. And so I basically just stopped using it because it just I just couldn't find something that worked. Now, maybe you could do, like, a short rail, like a little, whatever, 50, 20 millimeters or something. as just, like, a second attachment point that you could make something go forward or back or... Yeah. I don't know. I think it depends on what you're trying to do, but it's... It introduces a lot of constraints. I think that that Condor Blue top handle, I think, would solve some of those problems you mentioned because the the hole on it is pretty high up. It's level with the handle that you hold. It's also forward a bit. Yeah. It comes out mm-hmm. at an angle. And so I think both of those things would keep it... It wouldn't be right down next to the cage. And it's also... I could imagine putting something on there in your hand, not really interfering mm-hmm. with it. So it's a good placement for it. But 
Yeah, I guess that that does make a lot of sense because the stuff that I was complaining about with things on top of the cage on my XT3 cage, it comes with a built-in cold shoe on the left, mm-hmm. and I put a second cold shoe on the right, and I can't use either of those whenever I use the the rod. Right. But that one, it just goes straight up. So yeah, that could that could make it a little a little easier. I don't know between those two. I mean. 20 bucks, I'd probably just get whichever one I like the look of better, to be honest. Yeah. I don't think the 15 millimeter rod thing is that big of a selling point. This one doesn't um, look like it. The Condor Blue doesn't look like it has the locking cold shoe on the front. Oh, that's right. I don't think it does. That's pretty clutch to me because I've been using the cold shoe to hold the monitor instead of the a front mount. And yeah, yeah. it's that's great. I don't really like cold shoes as an attachment point, to be honest. I, it, I feel like I have to crank down that nut so much to get mm-hmm. it to be secure. Yep. Sometimes there's some that are out of spec. Like my DJI mic has a cold, like you're supposed to be able to put that into a cold shoe, but some cold shoes I've used, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's too loose. I was it's like watching, it works on a hot shoe, but not a cold shoe. It's I was watching weird. some reviews on that. And to that point, uh, those those DJI mics, if you tighten them down too much, it's really easy to break that cold mm-hmm. shoe thing. And so, like you said, if you try to, if you're putting it into the wrong whatever plate size, and you're like trying to crank it down to make it fit, you're just gonna break the break yeah. the microphone. Yeah. And then you, it's it's part of the the thing. You can't really replace it. Yeah. It, it's just, I don't know. I I feel like cold shoe is like the poor man's quick release. You know, like it's like it's it's there by default. Yeah. Like hot shoes are great, and you can do all this cool stuff with the camera. And then it's like, well, we might as well grab cold shoe, make a cold shoe also, because you already have all this hot shoe stuff. But you're right. I mean, like, screw it in. Use a NATO. Do do something else. Well, I mean, they make they make quick release things. Like Condor Blue makes them, and there's some other brands that make them too. Where like, it's a separate interface, but there's like a thing where you screw a receiver onto your cage, and then you have a little thing that you screw into like the quarter inch on your mm-hmm. monitor or whatever. It's like a it's sort of like a tripod plate where there's like a little lever that you pull and you can release yeah. it. And stuff like that seems like it's just a lot more secure. There's definitely I mean, better ways to do it. It's just, it's it's there by default. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and those other options are more expensive. I mean, if you want to use a monitor mount, you know, that's going to be 30 to 40 bucks. All the quick release stuff is, you know, going to be like at least 25, 30 bucks for whatever you're getting. I mean, so it's oh, expensive. Wait, this uh, Condor Blue one comes in space gray and black. So oh, uh, man. you're going to have to get that one instead. <laughs> I wanted to ask too, uh, how you feel about top handles in general. I, I like them in theory, and I always I've I've purchased like three different handles at this point, and I just think I just see myself using them. I like shooting low. I mean, top handles make the most sense as far as like handles go to me, like top handle over side handle. And then in actuality, for everything I ever do, I just always end up taking it off. I want to be able to use the eyepiece because like often you just can't see the monitor. Um, and then my other complaint about them is it makes everything so tall. Like, I, you know, I'm like, okay, I got this camera, and now I'm going to put a handle on it, and I'm going to put a monitor on the handle, and then I'm like, maybe I'm going to put something on top of the monitor, and then it's like now it's, it's this unwieldy thing, and then like, oh, I'm going to put it in a cage, and maybe I'll put a battery on the bottom to like balance out the weight. And now you have this like stinking assembly that's whatever, two feet tall, and it's just like the stupidest looking thing. And I'm like, I just, I can't be seen in public. And unless you're doing a shoulder rig or something, it's like two feet tall, and it's about like six inches long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life right now? So that's, I don't know. I think that top handles make a lot of sense for a lot of things, but I'm also like, I need my camera to look like a race car or an SUV. 
and not like a like a plate that I don't know. Want your camera to look like a race car? I do. I want it just. I want it yeah. to be like. I want it to be perfectly proportionally square, or rectangular, rectangular cubicle in form with a map box on the front, and I want people to be like, "What's a cool looking camera?" <laughs> not like, "What is that guy doing?" <laughs> I feel like I like it for so. So I I really like using a camera monitor, and I I do that for almost everything I shoot, just because. If I unless I feel like I need to be low profile and have a really compact setup, if if I'm doing any other normal filming, I like having it just because it's a bigger screen. You can see what I'm doing easier, and so I like the top handle for that because I can mount the monitor to the top handle, and then I can have one thing that I can quick release from the camera, and I, I find that to be nice. But the main thing I, I and I don't shoot low angle all that often. Like I, I often just don't really think to do it, I guess. But the main thing I find it useful for is just carrying the camera around. If I'm at an event or something and I'm not actively shooting the whole time and, you know, there's going to be 15 minutes or something where I just need to walk around and have my camera available but not be using it, with the top handle, I can carry it one-handed very easily. Mm -hmm. Whereas without that, you know, if you've got anything else on the cage... Yeah, if you have it rigged out, then sure, it it's becomes a little unwieldy. Mm -hmm. I mean, because otherwise you're holding it just with the right grip or maybe you're holding it by the lens or something, mm -hmm. but I like the top handle for that purpose and yeah. and so i normally put it on but i it does it does kind of feel i guess maybe a little overrated it's always like oh you've got to get a top handle but i don't know i kind of agree with you i think if i didn't have one i'd be fine <laughs> but th but then i also wonder like i also wonder would i would i be more likely to use it if i had the record button on it so it sounds like for you so far not really i mean you can borrow it <laughs> <laughs> you know maybe maybe you'll be like i love this thing uh, this is great because like, yeah. i don't know what you're talking about i don't know it's a it's an interesting topic yeah mm. what else you got the last thing i've got on here just says camera sensors i feel like this could go on for forever but yeah this is a pretty a pretty wide topic but what i really wanted to talk about was like just kind of some things in general and like where where the industry is going I mean, it's, it's like talking about processors, right? It's Which no one ever talked about processors and cameras, Daniel. We should talk about camera processors. <laughs> there you go. Add that to the list. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's it's the main thing, right? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, how you process the footage and how you do, like, the demosaicing and all, the, all that stuff and color science and whatever. Um, I mean, that... That is a that's a huge chunk of it. I mean, you look at what Google did with the Pixel phones, you know, with the first Pixel, and it was like they took this old Sony sensor, and then you know, with computational photography, they like it's like wow, holy cow, how did they do this? Um, and I mean, it's the same thing with it's the same thing with with DSLRs and mirrorless cameras, obviously, where they they have their own processing that's happening, and sure. You can like pull the raw data off the thing, and it's like, oh, it's raw, and they're not doing anything, and I can I can do the processing myself. But I feel like there's always still just like a little bit of, I mean, there's still some like, demosaicing happening. Like they have to take the red, green, blue, whatever bare or X-trans arrangement of pixels, and then like figure out, okay, a light hit two of those and not the third one. What color is it? And if it's like a red hits the blue and the green and not the red, like how do you know it's red? Right, and that's why you like with fine patterns, you get weird whatever on them, you know, more Anyway, Sony makes camera sensors, Canon makes camera sensors. And before this, I was gonna go check to see who makes Panasonic's camera sensors and who makes Olympus's, but I'm pretty sure those are Sony's also, right? Yeah. So it's basically like 
there's there's a very limited number of sensor makers right and all these other camera brands just buy a sensor from whichever exactly and like when people think about sony cameras like no one thinks about like sony cell phones um but like every cell phone uses sony sensors and then you think about like sony cameras it's i mean everyone's using their sensors but i mean they obviously save the best sensors for themselves the first stacked sensor was in the a9 mark one which was like 2017 so like yeah. they've been doing stacked in their cameras at least had the first stacked for whatever four years now and then now it's like the next big thing Right now that everyone else can get it, yeah, and so like one of the cool things about Sony is like they are at the forefront because they're making the hardware stack from like top to bottom, um, and like that's really cool and it's like really you know on the cutting edge or whatever, and so it's like what's what's the next thing coming? Like you got to look at Sony. It, it's interesting though because even though they have access to the sensors and and they make the full stack and stuff, I mean Sony cameras are good and a lot of people like them, but it's not like they're just like way better than everything else and like why would you use anything else other than a sony like you would think that would be such a big advantage that yeah. you know they would just always be dominant and they're not so it's definitely not the only thing that goes into it i mean there's a lot more that goes into what makes a good camera than just the sensor and but I, I guess it is kind of the foundation of it. it yeah for sure i mean there's so much going into it but it is interesting to think that like sony has this inherent advantage on everybody except canon mm-hmm. and like Canon colors, right? Like everyone, like Canon users are really like they're diehard for their Canon stuff, and Canon's the only other one out there making their own sensors, and they seem to move slower, but they do seem a lot more, also a lot more like Apple-y to me, where it's like Canon owns their whole stack and they are they are like their brand unto themselves, and they're not innovating in a way that Sony is. They were they're not they're never the first one to like come out with a thing, but they're always working really hard to make sure that like whatever they're doing is is works and is reliable and like a professional could pick up an R5 and know that you know like they're going to be able to take the pictures they're going to take and it's going to work and it's not going to be it's not going to be like a Ninja 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, um so like different approaches there but I just I kind of find it kind of interesting that you know like all your Nikons and your Fujis and all this stuff are all just using Sony sensors. Yeah. And so curious you know like what's what's next, right? Mm-hmm. I mean right now Stack sensors is kind of like the next big thing. And and remind me, what's the what's the advantage to that? Like, what are we seeing with those? Yeah, so, like, you had your traditional camera sensor, and then, like, the, the big thing four years ago was um, backside illumination. And that's where they put the processing nodes on the sensor. And then stacked is where they... Oh, boy, I can't remember now. I can't explain it to you. I can't remember. Um, it's, <laughs> well, what's the effect, though? I mean, that's really what people care about. What are they? Whatever. Anyways, it, it's, it's how they configure the sensor and how they build the sensor. Um, and by creating a stack sensor, it reads out faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you look at something like the Nikon Z9, and it doesn't even have a mechanical shutter. It can read out so fast that they felt like they didn't even need to put a mechanical shutter in. And like the primary reason you would have a mechanical shutter is like you have to you have to scan the sensor, right? Right. And so the mechanical shutter is what cuts the light, and then knows. And then the sensor knows, like, okay, you know, just basically the sensor lights up and starts reading all of the things, and then the the shutter moves in front of it, and like that's how you you cut the image, right? Versus an electronic shutter where like it has to read every line, yeah, because um, it's not going to read everything all at once. And so, you know, if you use an electronic shutter, you can get things like rolling shutter. Yeah, rolling shutter. You get that rolling shutter effect. 
Um, but the uh, they did like a bunch of you know action photo testing and stuff on the Z9, and it doesn't have any rolling shutter. Yeah, and it's and it's like that because it's a stack sensor. Well, and it also has effects like like the XH2S has really good autofocus performance because. Mm-hmm. I guess for autofocus, you have to read something from the sensor, and then the camera processor has to interpret that and do something with that information. And so, the and stack sensor lets it read out that information faster. And but also, like you have to, it's basically you have to like read an autofocus frame, and then you have an image frame, and then you have an autofocus frame, then you have an image frame. And so the the XH2S can because it can shoot, you know, whatever like. 240 times or whatever read speed like in its per second um they can have half of those be autofocus and therefore it can autofocus faster mm-hmm. it's all really cool and interesting and it's still not like prevalent in in all the cameras i mean things that have stack sensors right now are the a1 series um from sony and then like your z9 your r3 the olympus om1 and the xh2s everyone every camera maker right now has like their flagship camera with a stack sensor but it's like their most expensive i mean the om1 and the uh the xh2s are like the most affordable stack sensors that you can get right now and then i feel like the stack sensor innovation is what's going to close the gap and maybe has the potential of like killing off small sensors you know for like the xt3 whenever that came out um you know it's like oh wow this camera can shoot you know 20 frames per second photos and it was nuts at the time and like you just can't do that on full frame. I mean, your comparable full frame camera was like 11 frames per second, and like that's the argument for something like the GH5 or any Micro Four Thirds sensor is, you know, you can shoot you know 180 frame per second slow mo and this sort of thing because you the sensor is way smaller, so you can read it faster, and faster read speeds is just it enables a lot of really cool video features because the XH2S can read faster. It can read 14 bit. Um, off of the sensor and then downsample it in for their F-Log2 profile and then you get like all this crazy dynamic range. You have all these advantages of being able to do things faster by using smaller sensors. But like as full frame cameras move to stack sensors, that gap is closes, right? I mean, you have a full frame sensor that can do what an APS-C sensor can now. It's like, why am I going to shoot on an APS-C sensor unless I need the reach? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like the innovation of these camera sensors is it going to kill off APS-C? Like, is there, in a world where, like, we have stack sensors and everything, is there still room for APS-C or Micro Four Third cameras? Yeah, I think yes, because I don't think that, I don't think that the only reason to use those smaller sensors is just, just for the performance. I mean, the size definitely makes a difference. The size of a Micro Four Thirds or APS-C lens is so much smaller than a full-frame lens, you know, and if you're doing travel or you're putting something on a gimbal or even if you just don't want to carry around a heavy camera i mean i feel like there's still some pretty big advantages to those smaller sensor sizes yeah i guess i mean that makes sense right you know travel and that sort of thing you know the those fuji lenses are just so small and so compact compared to the you know a full frame a full frame lens so the other interesting thing is uh ibis so, like, the reason the GH5 has such good IBIS is because the sensor's small. And so they can, like, the thing inside, it can shift that around right. a lot easier than, than a full-frame sensor. So, yep. so IBIS, um, smaller lenses. I mean, with those smaller sensors, like, there are there are those those advantages. But, like, the limitation for the longest time has been, you know, how many pixels, pixels you can pack, pack into it. Mm-hmm. How many pixels you can pack into the pixel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, like, 
excitingly, the X-H2, so 40 megapixel APS-C sensor camera, right? Up to that point, I mean, the biggest you could get was like 31 or 32 in, uh, I think it was like a 7D or something. Yeah. Know, had had it that high, but it's it's cool to see a really high megapixel APS-C camera. Mm-hmm coming out so it makes me think that like you know maybe the smaller format isn't dead right but it also you know if you can fit 40 megapixels into a APS-C size you know sensor how big is full frame going to get yeah I mean that's the biggest that's one of the big selling points for um, for like your GFX lines I mean those things are 102 megapixels and it's because you can't fit that many megapixels into a full frame camera um, I think there's rumor that the like the next whatever big Sony camera is going to be like a hundred megapixels. It's just interesting because for photography, everybody's, everybody's wanted full frame and you know, some people using medium format with GFX stuff, but I feel like with video, a lot of the full frame stuff is basically a result of YouTube. You Mm -hmm. know, everybody wanted to do the wide angle stuff and get that. But I mean, if you look at like broadcast cameras, they have really small sensors and and it, and it's not sensors. It's not for lack of money. You know, they're not trying to save money. They're not trying to make a small lens. You know, you see those enormous things that, you know, you use like an NFL game or whatever, those those mm-hmm. you know, $60,000 Fuji lenses. You know, I'm sure if they wanted to use a larger sensor, they could, and they just don't. And so I, th- I think that's interesting, too. Like, it seems like this push toward larger and larger sensors is maybe more of a photography thing and more of like a YouTube-driven thing than anything else. It doesn't seem like you have to have that for video. Yeah. And not to, like, I guess I don't necessarily want to get into the, like, the whole argument about, you know, sensor size and what have you, but really mostly to highlight kind of where things are as far as, like, the camera sensor world and the limitations that we're in. I mean, you look at phones right now, and from year to year, the phone's basically the same except for the camera. And innovations in image capture technology feels, to me, like one of the most exciting things that's happening in tech right now. That's, that's probably too, too exaggerative hyperbolic but like as that's where all the phone advancements are happening and it's like the same thing you know in in like actual cameras and this the limitations that we have right now are you know megapixel size even if you're spending ten thousand dollars on a stills camera you're not going to get something that's more than a hundred ish megapixels um you can't get these enormous you know maybe 200 megapixel image so like how many whatever dio modules you can pixels you can fit into a sensor and then read speeds the other one you know, how, how quick can we read it and improve autofocus and that sort of thing? And then, you know, how much light can you gather with, with minimal noise performance? And so, like, those are the things that we're, we're looking at to see, you know, what's, what are the limitations and, like, where is it going to go from here? Yeah. Um, I was doing some, some research to see, like, what, what Sony's doing next. And they had a prototype, but they're working on, they're looking at a two-layer transistor pixel stacked image sensor. And the current like tests and stuff that they're doing is they can double the sensitivity with the same noise performance basically um and so you can get essentially twice as much light um (laughs) that that sounds pretty impactful yeah which would be which would be absolutely nuts to see like everything be better by a full stop yeah um as far as like noise performance that would be great yeah and so like that's you know once we all finish getting to all our stack sensors i mean that i feel like that's going to be the next thing yeah, and so that, and then, and then, obviously, obviously, density. You know, what's what's next, right? It's it's always exciting to look forward, but probably the next big things we're going to see are better dynamic range and better noise performance in smaller sensors, 
And by smaller, I mean like, you know, APS-C full frame. I mean, we're already starting to see that, right? Like yeah. the XH2S has 14 stops of dynamic range. Mm-hmm. Um, the XH2 has the 40 megapixel APS-C sensor. So yeah. those are both new things that we haven't really seen in a sensor that small before. And then the next the next thing is going to be higher resolution. Seeing these, these full frame cameras that can shoot, you know, whatever, 120 megapixels or something crazy. Yeah. Like, is full frame just going to be, like, the end all? Or is it, like, full, people are like, well, I don't need a medium format camera because I, need, I want a smaller one, so I'll get full frame. I can shoot 100 megapixels. You know, they, the full frame cameras can now read faster. And it's like, well, you know, I don't really need a APS-C camera or what have you. And I don't know. I'm just interested to see, like, where things are going to converge. Because, like, people use their phones, right? It chews up the bottom end of the camera market. And so, like, there's only a slim section of people who are actually buying all this gear. I mean, like you said earlier, it's not all just about the sensor either. I mean, the processor, mm-hmm. I think, is is going to be a factor too. And we'll, we'll have to talk about that at some point. But, yeah. I mean, because we already see limitations there. Like, you know, you can't uh, record certain codecs internally because right. it just can't handle the data. And so that makes me think. That makes me think they're probably pushing the processor as hard as they can if they right. can't do those things, and so then it makes me think, well, what happens, you know, if this is a if this turns into a hundred megapixel sensor? That's a lot of data. I guess I could ask, like, you know, the GFX series, for example, is is doing that already. So I mean, there well, must just, be a way. Yeah, but like How the rolling shutter on a GFX is nuts. Yeah, and the new Hasselblad camera won't even shoot video, and the theory is because it just like you can you can only record Jello. <laughs> Yeah, and so it just, I don't know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, that's where I feel like phones have really been ahead. You know, if I if I pull out my iPhone and take a picture in the dark, it looks better than anything I can get with any of my real cameras. Right. And and I know it's because the phone's doing all the computational photography yeah, stuff. And, and, I, and obviously if I pixel peep it, you know, it's, it's not going to look very good. But sure. it still feels like the phone has so much more processing power than any of these cameras do. And it feels like that's going to have to advance at least as fast as the sensor, if not mm-hmm. faster, because otherwise it's not going to keep up. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, I don't know anything about like these processing core. And like, they're obviously their specialty. You know, it's not like they're taking a, you know, a, some Intel processor, some Qualcomm ARM processor, and like sticking it in a camera. They're custom built yeah. processors that do image processing. It's not like you can just go say, "Hey, Apple, why don't you, you know, give Canon your A16s?" It's that would that would be worse than what they're currently using. So. We should research that, though. I think it'd be interesting to learn more mm-hmm. about it. And you always see it in marketing material. You know, they'll be like, this has the new whatever processor, you know. And, yeah. But it's like, I don't know what that means. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm curious what's what's happening there. The other thing to like look at in talking about sensors and like where things are going is obviously looking at like cinema stuff and like how quickly you're closing the gap shooting like on a on an X-H2 versus like, why would I go get an Arri Alexa? Can I get like the same thing or whatever? Yeah. Airy came out with their first new camera sensor in like 10 years. In, I think it was like six months ago or something like mm. that. And that new sensor is super, super cool. And it has like 16 stops of dynamic range, but they, they extended it on the top end. And so like one of the reasons people like to shoot film is because of like how you capture highlights and how highlights roll off and that sort of thing. And if you look at like a lot of modern TV shows and a lot of modern movies, um, everything is darker. It's more compressed and has less highlights yeah. than a lot of the stuff that was shot like in the 90s where like there's all this glow and like, you know, you can naturally light things and that sort of thing. One of the things that Ari Alexa is pushing with this new camera is like, look, we're going to we're gonna light this through a window 
and we're just gonna let it overexpose and like look how look how well we handle those highlights. You know, have an extra like two stops mm-hmm. in the highlights, and they're like pushing it to get closer and closer to the performance of film, um, which is is really cool. Yeah, and it's also interesting to think like movies have looked a certain way for the last ten years because like everything is shot on Airy, and now for the next ten years. Movies are going to start looking different again. I'm probably like just, oh, you know, we got cameras, yay, right? I'm exaggerating, I get excited. But like, you go from the 90s when things were shot on film, and then like now everything looks different for the last 20 years. And it's probably not going to be the same, you know, significance, but movies from whatever 2022 on are going to look different. Yeah. And it's like the the language changes, right? Because of like how you're capturing capturing this footage, and it all comes back to the sensors. Well, and it's also interesting because I, think a lot of times when we look at you know when a new camera comes out and you look at what can this camera do Mm -hmm. you know you look at things like how many megapixels does it have what video modes does it support you know things like that but we don't really think that much about you know well what sensor does it have and you know and what what effect does that actually have on the the image you know Mm -hmm. i mean maybe you see something about how many stops of dynamic range it has but even that doesn't really tell you like what character that sensor is going to put on the image and so that is something i think that goes into it a lot and people kind of think about it i mean you know the canon colors and stuff you know i mean people kind of talk about it but it's probably more impactful than what than what we tend to think yeah it's i would it's a this is a totally different topic and no time for it today but we we should talk about like x-trans versus bear and that deal mosaic and stuff and yeah and that sort of thing um I think that's a really interesting topic. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. But we've probably uh, gone on long like enough we've gone, about we've that. gone a really long time. Yeah, yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah, that sensor stuff's a little rambly, but I think it's all really interesting. Yeah, well, it's exciting to think about what's next. Yep. So, Well, let's go ahead and call it there. That's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, we'd encourage you to rate us on iTunes and tell your photography friends about the show. Also, check out our website at cameragearpodcast.com to learn more or send us feedback and questions. We'll be back with more next week.